Amen. God is faithful. This morning for our uh, congregational prayer time, we're going to pray for something that's very dear to our hearts here at Waypoint. We're going to pray for the children who are in foster care and hoping to be adopted. I just looked up the statistics. On any given day, there are nearly 428,000 children in foster care in the United States, and over 670,000 children spent time in foster care last year. So I bet you, I don't know, but there's at least 428,000 churches in the United States. I'm gonna tell you a story about Mikey. That's a made up name. Mikey is in first grade. My wife Erica is a teacher's assistant at a local school here in the Triangle. Mikey's mother was, when Mikey was young, his mom went to prison for drugs in Texas. He was transferred to live with a relative here in North Carolina and then they transferred his mom to a North Carolina prison. It was an abusive situation because of his mom's, her problems. She neglected him, abused him, just in many different ways. So the first foster parents, his relatives couldn't handle him. Um, then he went to another foster home who, because of some of his behavioral issues. He's six years old. He's been to three schools, five homes. When Erica works with him one-on-one, he's a great kid. He's smart. He you know, could learn. He could grow. He doesn't do any homework at home. He just checks out, and he, he starts destroying stuff at the school. And when he gets a chance and he gets panicked, he just runs out of the school, just sprints and just tries to get out. Six years old. There's tens of thousands of Mikeys out there. It's hard, it's hard to foster, and we as Waypoint wanna be part of the solution. So we're gonna pray uh, three things this morning. One is our pastor, Lawrence, and his wife, Gina, our lead pastor, will be adopting a son who's been in the orphanage his whole life in China, and they're heading there this spring, late spring, they don't have, almost all the paperwork's gone through. They're just praying for that final bit. So we're going to just ask God that he would work out all those details for the you family, our pastor and his wife. Um, second thing I want to pray for is that God would raise up his church throughout this country, that in the next 10 years, there'll be no foster kids. Uh, that brothers and sisters in Christ would come and surround these kids and not everybody can do it. It's really, really hard. So the ones who God calls to do it, then all of us have to be there to back up and to support them. We're actually going to have a meeting here at Waypoint in May, April or May. Uh, we have some people in Waypoint who are part of this program that fosters and part of the local community, and they're going to just share ways where we can be a part of it. You may not be the person who actually fosters, but you're going to be part of the supporting the system. And then the third thing, let's just pray for Waypoint and the Triangle that the churches here would be a, an example for the rest of the nation, that we could really do it in the next couple of years, that we could be part of this. Please join me in prayer. God, I thank you that you adopted us, that when we were abandoned and we were your enemies and neglected, you bring us into a family. And what a beautiful picture, God, and, and there are so many kids who are hurting. And it's a broken, dark world, and the church can't do everything all at once, God. But we are committed as your people to bringing Christ-like justice to the triangle. God, be with us as Waypoint. Show us, lay upon our hearts the ones 
that you're calling to actually be foster parents or pursue adoption, to the ones who come alongside and support, and then how we partner with local churches in the area, and we, we do this together in collaboration. God, I pray for each one of those Mikeys out there right now, who's just Sunday morning, they're just sitting in their bed, maybe not have enough food, maybe crying and hurting and just wanting a parent, wanting a mother and a father to love them. God, I don't even know what to pray, but I, I know you're good and you love each of the Mikeys out there. We, I don't even know what to pray, God, but help us to be part of bringing your justice and your love to each of these children. Thank you for those you've already raised up. May they be an inspiration for us. And just continue to use us as your church to bring forth this picture of the good news that we're all adopted in Christ and we're all part of God's family. Thank you for this call and, and be with us as we trust you in loving these children. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. You can follow along in your own Bible or also on the screen. This is Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we can't now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, a tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will not the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit 
offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living of God. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know why, but I'm smiling right now. I don't know why, but I'm smiling right now and just chuckling to myself. Because I'm thinking about, if you were here maybe for the first time, maybe you're coming to church for the first time, maybe you've never been to church before, or you've never grown up in the church, and you heard that read, and you're just sitting here like, what? What in the world does that mean? Where's, why are we talking about blood and sacrifice and sprinkling and ashes? And you're like, I don't understand. From my perspective, I thought you were supposed to talk about like happiness and peace and love and caring for each other. And, and yes, we talk about all that stuff, but I don't know. I just, I just started thinking about that perspective right now as I was listening to that being read. And I thought, what does that mean? I don't know if you guys know this, and hopefully most of you know this, but we're in a series in the book of Hebrews. So we've been in this book called Hebrews. That's in the New Testament towards the end. We've been in this book since January. So since the new year started, we've been in this whole book, and we've been going all the way through the book of Hebrews. So we've been in it for now, what is it, March, what's today's date, 18th? Three and a half months. It's a long time. We've been in the book of Hebrews for about three and a half months, and honestly, I love it. But one of the challenging things about going through a book like this is certain books are repetitive, right? They repeat the same thing over and over again. So you, sometimes you're preaching somewhat similar sermons over and over again if you want to just go through the book and do it justice. But can I tell you what? I believe that the author of the Bible, I believe that God is intentional. When he repeats certain themes over and over again, he really wants you to get it. Do you hear that? And also, most of you guys probably heard me before when I preached a couple, a few weeks ago about this sermon about salvation and falling away. And you guys heard me say that if I, had to, if I was choosing what I was preaching on, that would not be a topic I would preach on. But what, the way we preach here is we just go through the books of the Bible because we want to hear the full counsel of Scripture. And so we're in another one of those passages where we're like, man, we've been talking about Jesus the high priest over and over again. And we have been, and, but I just really believe that the author of Hebrews wants you to get this point before we move on any further. So, so far in the book of Hebrews, we've done a, a quick little, I'll do a quick little recap. We've seen that Jesus is better. He's better than the Old Testament law. He's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. Jesus is better. As a matter of fact, all those things that we just mentioned, the prophets, the law, the, the, the teaching, it all is just 
pointing towards Jesus. He's the actual fulfillment of all that is intended in the law and in all the ceremonies. He is the better high priest. He is the better sacrifice. He is the source of rest. He's the one who gives us certainty. Last week, Pastor Josh spoke about the new covenant from Hebrews chapter 8. And today in Hebrews chapter 9, we're actually going to be kind of continuing that message that Pastor Josh kind of started on. And as we've already seen, a great theme from Hebrews chapter, really all of Hebrews up to now, is Jesus as our high priest. And especially in chapter 8, there's been a stress on Jesus as a superior high priest in all the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he's the mediator of a new and better covenant. And as that idea of Jesus being a better high priest and a mediator of better covenant is put before us, we have to ask the question, in what way? In what way? How is it, in what sense is Christ a better high priest of a new covenant? And the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, kind of does this detour all the way through where we're at here today. It kind of explains to us what he means by why Jesus is a better high priest. Pastor Josh last week spoke on verse 6 of Hebrews 8, the author of Hebrews saying that the covenant of Lord Jesus Christ is a better covenant enacted on better promises. He explains what he means by talking to you in Jeremiah chapter 31. So Hebrews 8 refers back to Jeremiah chapter 31, repeating the promises, stressing that the old covenant itself, the old promises of God, this relationship that was promised to his people, was looking forward to a new covenant. Not one that completely abolishes, but one that fulfills. Otherwise, why would an old covenant prophet like Jeremiah be talking about a new covenant? It's because the, new co- the Old Testament covenant was promised and looking forward to this new one. It was ineffective for accomplishing the nature of the communion which God desired for his people. So the new covenant was not going to be like that. Jeremiah stressed that in the new covenant, there would be unprecedented knowledge of the Lord by the people of God, as well as actual, true and actual forgiveness of sins. All these were stressed in Jeremiah 31, and the author of Hebrews piles all these things up in order to show the superior covenant that's in Jesus Christ. Has anyone here ever drank Coca-Cola Classic before? Yes? Have anyone ever drank the knockoffs of Coke, though? What are they called, like Mr. C? Or, whoa, 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 whoa. that's not a knockoff, that's a good thing. Coke's here is the nectar of life. Has anyone tried any, like, like the, the, the Sam's Choice, Mr. C, or... Whatever these other Coke things are out there. Coca-Cola was so popular. It's one of the biggest brands in all the world. But back in the 90s, they came out with a new slogan. And it said, can't beat the real thing. Anybody remember that slogan? I'll be honest with you. This is, this is not me endorsing Coca-Cola. I, as a matter of fact, I should probably say, don't drink Coke. My wife, would be, she's a dentist, so she's like, yes, please don't drink Coke. But I'll admit, I love me some Coke Zero. And it's one of my weaknesses, one of my addictions. I probably need to be working on. Me and God have been talking about it. But it's so good. I feel like God is one of those gifts that he gave in life. He's like one of the joys that he experienced his presence with. But okay. But one of the things, the reason they came out with this slogan is can't beat the real thing because people were coming out with knockoffs. Right? They're coming out with the others' patterns. Although the Pepsi fans in here, there's some of you guys, believe that they, they actually made a new recipe kind of t- tailored after Pepsi. I, I hear you guys, conspiracy theories everywhere. But what really, what Coke was trying to say, this is what I believe, is you can't beat the real thing. You can make all these different copies, but man, there's something like a fresh, new, cold Coke where you click, you open that can and that sounds so good. 
And what, what we're seeing here and what Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 is showing is that all these were shadows. They were tastes of coke, but it's leading up to this, this real thing, the real thing that's just coming. There were teasers. And guys, can I tell you this? This is kind of what we're supposed to be now, right? What do I say about the kingdom? I said there's a twofold purpose of the church. One is we're supposed to be a teaser, a coming attraction of the new kingdom, of the kingdom of God that's coming, right? Well, that's what all this Old Testament covenant knowledge was all about. These rules, these ceremonial laws, and this covenant promise, was, it was all a shadow of the relationship that one day will be fulfilled in Jesus. And it's a beautiful illustration, it's a beautiful picture that the Old Testament gives us. And so as we look into this Hebrew 9, we dive into this together, I want us to dive into it with that understanding that there's a reason for this shadow, there's a reason for this picture. And see that the, that the real thing is what we don't want to miss. We don't want to be caught up in the, in the shadows. We want to look and see the real thing. Does that make sense? So here we are. Let's dive into chapter 9 together. This passage can be outlined in different ways, but I, I think it's fair to outline it this way. If you look at verses 1 through 5, you see a similar theme running throughout the passage. It's basically describing the Old Testament regulations for worship especially the structure of the tabernacle itself. For those of you guys who sat down, you have a little piece of paper that you sat down on if you didn't pay attention and pick it up first. That's the picture of the tabernacle. That's the picture of the tent where the, the people of God during the wilderness, that's how they worshipped. That's where they worshipped. That's right there. Good job, people. <laughs> They're so good over there. We don't give them enough credit. Now this is described in verse 5 verses, then in verses 6 through 10, the author then begins to explain to us the meaning of those rituals which are performed at the tabernacle. He has gone to a great deal of trouble to explain to you that there's an inner sanctuary and an outer sanctuary in the tabernacle. And then in verses 6 through 10, the author explains why. The author wants you to understand how that, that function and what that has to say about Jesus' work. And then finally in verses 11 through 14, He's going to begin directly to apply the truths that we've learned about Old Testament worship and see that Christ's work is superior to the work done by the priest. So let's look at this passage together. And we'll keep that tabernacle on the screen. Thank you. Hebrews 9, the author describes two intersections of the temple. The first was called the holy place. There were three basic pieces of furniture in there, separating this section from the innermost section, called the holy of holies, was a curtain. It was called, in Hebrew, the parakeet which literally means shut off, which was exactly the veil's purpose. So right before separating the holy place and the holy of holies is this veil, really thick, about four inches. It was woven of 72 cords, each with 24 strands, blue and red and purple, layers of overlapping material so that the place where the presence of God, the holy of holies, was in absolutely unapproachable darkness. In the Holy of Holies, first he tells you that the altar of incense is there. This is a sign of mediation between the priests on behalf of the people of God. You know, the incense is a picture in the book of Revelation of prayers of God's people going up. Primarily in the Old Covenant, this now is set forth in the prayers, prayers of the priests on behalf of the people of God. So this altar of incense, this, this, this table of incense is a picture of mediation of the priest's prayers before God. Next comes the Ark of the Covenant. There are a few things inside the Ark, but on the top of it was a mercy seat where the blood of sacrifice was sprinkled. 
And on top of that stood two cherubim, where it stood like guards guarding the entry into the presence of God. Inside their ark, there are three items. We already read what they were, but let's just see, without looking down, without looking at your Bible, who knows what the three items inside the ark were? It's a trivia question. You guys might be able to win like Jeopardy one day with this. Tablets, what else? Staff. Manna. Before we read the scripture today, raise your hand if you're honest. How many of you knew that? All right, all right, not bad, not bad. You guys ever seen uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones? One of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. I always wanted to look for it one day, but okay, that's another story. Three items were in there. One, manna is there, a sign of God's extraordinary provision for his people. This is one of the great events in redemptive history when he provides food for his people in the wilderness. Then Aaron's rod is there, but it was budded. Do you guys know what that means? Like it kind of sprouted almost. The event when it was happening is when God was showing which tribe would be the priestly tribe. Aaron's rod budded and indicated that the Levites would be the priestly tribe, a sign of God's choosing of the priestly line. Also, the tablets of the covenant were inside the Ark of the Covenant. This is a sign of God's righteous rule over his people. So these are items that the people, the Israelite people knew of. They were like, these are things that they, they knew of that had huge significance in their redemptive history. Even to us, that's huge significance. And into that Holy of Holies, only one priest, the high priest, would enter. Only one time a year on a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest would go in, sprinkle the blood of a clean animal sacrifice on top of the ark. As the writer of Hebrew notes in verse 1 of chapter 9, the high priest was to make meticulous preparation before entering into the Holy of Holies. No defilement was allowed upon him. Leviticus warned that if any defilement was found upon a person touching the ark, he would be struck down. And there's a lot of stories in the Old Testament like that. Nadab, Uzziah, Uzzah, all touched the ark and was, was, um, died, was struck down. Ray Dillard describes the intense process like this. A week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion, taken away from his home and into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, and throughout the week he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, he bathed head to toe, dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone or pay for the penalty of his own sins. He offered three bulls. The first he paid for, and it was an offering for his own sin. After that, he came out and bathed completely again. A new white linen was put on him, then he went in again, this time sacrificing for the sins of the priests. That's not all. He would come out a third time, and he bathed again from head to toe, and they dressed him in brand new pure linen again. This time he put on an ephod with stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he went to the Holy of Holies and atoned for all the sins of the people. This was all done in public. The temple was crowded, and those in the attendants watched closely. There was a thin screen, and he bathed behind it, but the people were present. They saw him dress, bathe, go in, come back out. He was the representative before God, and they were cheering him on. They were concerned to make sure that everything was done properly and with purity because he represented them before God. So I want you guys to get this. The original audience of the book of Hebrews would know what was entailed in this ceremony. What the author is saying and describing here is not something new to them. 
He wasn't describing a ceremony that they had no clue about. He, they knew all about it. They knew what was happening here. So the author is making a point when he's reiterating it. He is saying that even the divine regulations of the Old Testament reveal the inherent limits of the Old Testament covenant. They show the limitation of the old system and the need for something greater, something more perfect, something that it all pointed to. And basically his argument is this. He's saying the very greatest symbols of God's nearness and presence with his people that are on display, where? In the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. And he lists them for us. These are his symbols of God's nearness. But all of these symbols of signs of God's grace and his nearness and his glory for his people were all on one side of the Holy of Holies. And nobody in the Old Testament could go there except for the high priest only once a year. What he's, what he's saying this for is you cannot but sense the, 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 the grief, the bereavement of God's people being able to not see the symbols of God's very presence, his very provision, his very rule, his very power, that you can't even go and see it. You can't be with it. It's almost like it's so close, but you can't get it. It's almost like that Coke, that beautiful Coke, freezing cold Coke is right there, but it's like uh, you can't get it, though, because it's separated by a wall. I can see it. There's a glass wall. I can even hear the sound of the ice, but you can't get it. And the Israelite people, you can almost feel the grief. The Hebrew writer is saying, guys, all the symbols of the nearness of God is right there. His provision, his, his power, his authority, his rule in your life, his, the, for him to even hear your prayers, it's all right there, but you can't get there. You're still separated. Something is still wrong. It's still incomplete. None of God's people could gaze upon the altar of incense. It was separated, it was taken away from them. So why is he saying this? Because he wants you to understand that even these symbols of God's nearness and presence were withheld from God's people under the old covenant. So one of the superiorities, one of the reasons it's superior to the new covenant is that in the new covenant, in Jesus Christ, and in the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, God has drawn extraordinarily near to his people so that his people every day can experience what they were just so desperately wanting to get. Let me say that one more time. What he's saying is that the superiorness, if you will, the superiority of the new covenant is that all the Old Testament people, all the, under the old law, were sitting here saying, I want that nearness of God. I want to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. I, I see his provision. I see his majesty. I see his power. But there's a veil separating us. And what this author of Hebrews is saying, all this is pointing to the lacking of it, is pointing to a new covenant. And that new covenant in Jesus is that, that we, in our everyday can experience the very presence of God, can know it, can feel it, can see it, can taste it, can be a part of it, can move in it, and can live in it. That Coke is no longer denied us. The real thing is available for us. He begins his argument in verse 6 through 10. If you look at this passage, he tells us the theological significance of what he's been hinting at. If you look at verses 6 and 7, these preparations have, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And then he begins to explain to us, especially in verses 9 and 10, the significance of it. Looking at verse 9, he tells us the Old Testament worship was symbolic. And in verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying that the way to the holy place has not been disclosed while the tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. He means that the outward tabernacle in the Old Covenant pointed to a greater reality 
beyond itself and not yet experienced. This is, by the way, the one reason why symbolism is so minimal in the New Testament worship. Because I want you to hear this. Symbolism in the Old Testament worship was central because it's so important for the Old Testament believer to understand that there was something yet to come that was greater than he experienced. But in New Testament worship, we don't practice as much symbolism because the reality has come. Do you hear that? You see, if we, well, the Old Testament, there's so much of like, uh, this symbolizes this, and the, the, the Ark and the Covenant and the, the, the ritual washing, and the, all that is all pointing to a greater reality that, that will one day come and that has come in Jesus. So this is all symbolism, the washing and the purifying. It just shows and the separateness that we have with the veil. These were all symbols of a greater heavenly reality. The Israelite people had a view that this actual tabernacle, this holy temple, actually existed. That it was just a picture of the actual reality in heaven, of the holy dwelling place of God. And in this understanding, in this viewpoint, what they're saying is this symbolic, this is all symbolism of drawing close to God and being near to God. Well, us, on this side of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we don't need symbolism anymore because we experience in reality what their symbols just pointed to. Do you guys hear that? That because what we have now is no need for symbols to point us, we actually have the real thing. We have Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, the very pathway into the, the most holy of holies. In verse 8, we were told that the standing, the physical presence of that temple symbolized that the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed. All those symbols of God's presence are where you and I could not have gotten to them. Only the high priest could have gotten to them. What more graphic picture can you get of the fact that the way into the very presence of communion of God has not yet been revealed? And of course, the author of Hebrews is going to say, because the way is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way into the presence of the Father. My friends don't miss this. Here's the deal. In the understanding of the Hebrew Israelite world, the understanding was this, was that we as human beings, by looking at our very nature, we were sinful, we, we were dirty. We, we, and guys, can we just be honest with you? If you look at our own lives and the way we live in, look at the world we live in, we see the truth in, that, in those words and that understanding. I always say this, guys, the human condition, I've always said over and over again, is that we want to be known we want to be loved, and we crave purpose. But can I just be honest? I just want to stick with that first part for a little bit. And I'm just going to speak out of my own heart and my own experience in my own life, is that I find that the more I read about humans and the human condition, and the more I, I read the news and see what's going on in the world around us, can I just say this? The more I've come and become made more aware how sinful we are. Danny, Pastor Danny just shared a statistic. What was it, 600-something kids in America? I mean, the idea, that, and I understand a lot of those kids were orphaned for some re one reason or another, but the idea of some of those kids being abandoned and abused by their parents, that sickens my heart. I just get angry. You know, and I watch... TV shows and watch the news or see some of the stuff, the atrocities that human beings are capable of, and it sickens me. And then I stop and think, you know what, just to be completely honest, I'm not any better than those people. Because me, I, I've lived a good life and I have people love me and I still commit some of the worst atrocities. I'm still a terrible person. 
I'm still so selfish, thinking only about myself. And I look at that and I realize something. I realize that in the midst of this, this idea of I want to be known, in the idea of this want to be known, well, if I really want to be known, then I need to be known for all my mess up stuff. Right? And if I want to be known with all my mess up stuff, then I just got to, there's, there's, there's an issue because I can't be loved with all that mess up stuff. Not by somebody who's, who's holy and truly the definition of love. Because I also know that in my heart, even with all my mess up stuff, that I have a terrible yearning for justice. Right? I hate it when the, the weak get oppressed. I do. My sister says uh, in the Enneagram, like I'm kind of like, is there something called a champion or something like that in the Enneagram? Is there one? My sister said, I, you should do the Enneagram. I've never done it before. But she's like, you'd probably like, be the champion or something. Because I, I love rallying to the cause of those who are being like, defeated or oppressed or put down. I'm the guy that wants to like, my dream is always to do like one of those last stand charges in like Braveheart or something. You know, that something epic inside of me wants to just jump out and fight for, for the, the oppressed and fight for freedom. And, you know, I wish we used swords and horses, but we don't do that anymore. But I'm just saying, something inside of me yearns for that. And I think that's what happens. Is I have, something inside of me is created that I see injustice and know that there, I need a source of justice. Right? And so I live in this world and this reality where I look around and I'm like, I want to be known, but I realize when I'm known and I, I, I crave justice that I fall really short of justice and righteousness and goodness and beauty. I fall so short of that. And I look around and I see the human condition that we all, we all do. So then there's a separation, there's a gulf here that exists in the midst of that, and I don't know what to do with it. In the Old Testament, what they did is they, they had pictures. They say, okay, there, there's, a, there's, there's ways where you can kind of still be known by a God who is just by having sacrifice for sin. But that's just pointing to, that was just a picture of, that was just a shadow of the real thing. And the real thing, guys, is this, is Jesus Christ. The real thing is Jesus Christ came into this earth, lived the perfect life of love, lived the life that we couldn't live, fulfilled every element of the law, was a perfect example of what God looks like. He was God himself on this earth, and he lived, and then he died as a sacrifice. He was the holy priest who said, I'll come forth and I'll offer sacrifice on behalf of the people, but because he himself did not need sacrifice for his own behalf because he was perfect, he gave a perfect sacrifice forever, eternally, so that you now can be in the presence of God, that in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your darkness, you can still be known and loved. We've heard this over and over again, but may this never just wash over you. May this never just kind of float over you. May this never just kind of go in one ear and out the other. There's a reason why the author of Hebrews is hammering this point down. This is life-giving. This is life-altering. This is the gospel. Don't miss it. Jesus is the real thing. He is the real thing that we get to experience, we get to taste, we get to know, and it changes everything. He is the high priest. These, these, these Old Testament pictures just pointed ultimately to him. He's the better high priest. He's the better high priest because, verses 11 through 14, he zeroes in on two thoughts. One, he's the better high priest because Christ entered through a greater tabernacle. He means that Christ entered into a real tabernacle, not just a shadowy earthly tent. He entered into the heavens of heavens. He entered into the very presence of God himself. 
This is not just kind of uh, some sort of mystical play. What's literally saying that when Jesus entered in, it wasn't entering into just this veil that existed. Remember, the Israelite understanding of this temple, this tabernacle, was that this on earth is just an illustration. That right there is just an illustration of what's in heaven. Right? That God's actually enthroned in heaven. He's just enthroned in his holy of holy place. And what Jesus did is by barging in, didn't just barge into the tent, he barged into the holy of holies himself where God is fully, fully in his presence is. He entered the higher place. Secondly, notice that Christ didn't enter by the blood of goats and calves. He entered by his own blood. What is being stressed is that Christ's righteousness is totally unlike our justifying righteousness. Guys, what we have is what Luther calls an alien righteousness, right? What we have is righteousness given by something, an outside area, an outside force. What we have is righteousness given to us by Jesus. But Jesus fully in himself was righteous. So he didn't enter into an alien righteousness, he entered into by his own righteousness. So that when he offered himself as a sacrifice, we are fully and eternally saved. Guys, I want you to hear this. I don't want you to miss it. The main question of this whole section in what sense is Christ the mediator of a better covenant? And it's precisely that this point is running to, this whole chapter is saying that over and over again, that symbolism through it all may seem outwardly impressive, it's empty. See, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying, you guys remember this that I told you, that the author of Hebrews is writing to people who are being kind of tricked by the Jewish people at the time. They're saying intellectually, well, guys, guys, he, Jesus can't be a high priest because he's not from the line of Levi. Remember this? And the author of Hebrews is saying, oh, whoa, 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 he might not be from the line of Levi, but he's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek trumps Levi because he was a king priest. And even Abraham bowed to Melchizedek. Right? Do you guys remember this part? And so what he's saying to them is, whoa, 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 whoa. These people are trying to go, make you go back to the symbolism, go back to ancient customs, go back to the ancient ways of worship. And he's saying, you're going back to the shadow. You're going back to the symbols. You're going back to the meaningless routine that was just was beautiful and has made to point you to the real thing, but you're going back to the fake thing. Why go back to the thing that's pointing to the real thing? You know, why go back to the appetizer when the entree is there? You know, why, why take a crumb when the feast is laid before you? Why take a taste when the whole meal is presented to you? Don't go back. And so this author of Hebrews is saying, guys, that was, that, those were just symbols. Don't you get this? What's important, what's real, is that what we have now fully in Christ. Don't go back. And what I'm telling you today is that symbols, religious ritual, none of that stuff, all that is good, but none of it saves. It is only Jesus. He's the real thing. And can I tell you something? This is so cool. The tabernacle is not only symbolic of the temple of God and the presence of God, it's also symbolic of the Garden of Eden. Okay? And I want you to hear this. This is what's so cool about this. The tabernacle is symbolic of the Garden of Eden because you have the angels, the cherubim. You know when the, when the people were kicked out of Eden, they had the angels were placed, and not like, like cute, chubby little guys with wings, but we're talking more like warrior angels, like the way I like to picture angels instead, you know, with flaming swords and like all like, like Conan kind of, you know, like... And they're protecting, they're saying, no, no, this is the way protected. So this is what we have here in the, in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. We have, it's this restoration of the Garden of Eden. And so what happens is when Jesus went into the tabernacle, he not only brought forth restoration to the relationship with God, but he also brought back restoration in the Garden of Eden. 
And now get this, this is the coolest thing though. So now what was symbols, all the symbols that pointed to Jesus are now fulfilled in Jesus, right? That's all done, it's all fulfilled, Jesus is here. Now we get to be the shadows that point others. We get to be now the shadows that say, hey, we're not the real thing, but he is. We get to live and love and serve in such a manner that now we get to be what the Old Testament law was, what the Old Testament tabernacle was. We get to now be that to people. We get to now be the ones that say, hey, here's what we're showing with our life and the way we live. Is we're showing that Jesus is the real deal. He's the real thing. I'm Coke Zero, which is pretty awesome. I, I mean, this might be good. This might taste good, but it's only because he's the real deal. He's got the secret ingredient. He's what you want to taste. He's what you want to know. I was telling the band today before we, we started worship today, and I said, you know, churches, have, they do a lot of cool things. They sing. They, they do events in the community. They have good hospitality. These are all amazing things, but that's not what we're about. If you come here and you don't hear the name of Jesus, if you don't experience him, then we're just fluff. If Jesus Christ himself is not lifted high in this place and we're not glorifying his name and spreading his name and in his name sharing who he is and not experiencing who he is and what he's done, then we're just meaningless ritual. But instead, if you can come and we can see us as shadows, you know, us as examples, us as mini Jesuses to say he's the real deal. And now we get to be the same, just like the tabernacle, just like, just like the rituals in the Old Testament, just like what happened. We get to show Jesus to the world. How incredible is that? And then not only do we get to show Jesus to the world, in that process of doing that, we now restore the Garden of Eden back. Hear me. This all ties back together to our theology here, is that as we're sharing Jesus, as we live in such a manner, what happens is restoration of, of, of the garden even, of paradise, of right relationship with God in this world, we get to be the instruments of that happening. So that when we adopt through foster care, when we adopt children and we make right what was wrong in the world, that's what we're doing. Do you guys get that? Can I tell you something, guys? Let me tell you that there's more reason to do good deeds than just to do good deeds. There are more reasons to do good deeds than just to feel good about ourselves and to pat ourselves in the back. Can I tell you that? That everything that we do for justice and for righteousness sake, for the kingdom's sake, advances the kingdom of God. And we make right what was wrong in this world is we're restoring back the Garden of Eden. Do you hear that? How awesome is that? How much more significance is that placed upon what we do? How much more calling does that place upon us? That we get to say, we get to advance the kingdom of God, kingdom of God's advancing, and where that is, that's where the restoration of creation is happening. We get to restore creation the way it was meant to be. So when you adopt, when you foster, when you serve and when you fight for justice, when you love others well, when you heal the brokenhearted, when you make disciples, when you fight for the oppressed, when you feed the hungry, you're restoring creation. We get to be what the all tabernacle all was meant to be. We get to point to Jesus. Do you hear that? So this point, the whole message, all of Hebrews up to this point, it's just hammering into you. Jesus is the better sacrifice. He's what it was all meant to be. So guys, live confidently in the fact that you are known and you are loved by a righteous God. 
that the high priest paid the ultimate price, you now have total and full experience relationship with God. Now let's restore creation. Amen? Let's pray.